Hello, this is just a quick note for my Anchor listeners. Uh, the podcast you're about to listen to on uh, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy is a new series I'm starting that will be hosted exclusively on my Locals community page. Uh, if you are interested in hearing the rest of the podcast series for Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, you can find it over there. I will leave a link in the description, and thank you very much. Hello, and welcome to the first in a new series of Exiting the Cave short reads, made available exclusively to my Locals community. This feature will begin with a series on The Consolation of Philosophy by... Anicus Manlius Severinus Boethius. Each episode will consist of a reading of one or two chapters in sequence, followed by a brief commentary offering a few insights into the text. Boethius's chapters are very short. Each consists of a single section of verse, followed by a passage of narration. So each episode is likely to be around 15 minutes long. There are a total of five books, or 39 chapters, so this series should last us a while, given one reading per week. The first episode covers both chapters 1 and 2 of Book 1. I'm making this episode available to all comers to the Exiting the Cave community page to provide a taste of what awaits those who are generous enough to support what I do here. So, uh, let's begin. The commentary for this episode will come before the reading, because I need to set the context for you. To start with, let's talk about the translation. One of the things that's both fun and frustrating about ancient works in foreign languages is that you have numerous translations to English to work with. In our case, there are essentially three translational traditions of Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. One, the H.R. James Oxford edition of 1897. Two, a slew of modern secular translations based largely on P.G. Walsh's Oxford translation from 1997. And three, the Catholic translations, the latest of which is Goins and Wyman from Ignatius Press, published in 2012. I've decided to go with the H.R. James translation for three big reasons. One, it nicely threads the needle between heavy-handed secularization found in the post-1997 editions and the heavy-handed Catholicization found in the Ignatius edition. James's translation is not easy to read and takes a bit of deciphering on the reader's part but I think it does the best job of treating the material with subtlety and grace. James feels no need to denature the religion out of the text, but he also doesn't feel the need to turn Boethius into a vehicle for apologetics and evangelization, which I think gets closest to the frame of mind of Boethius himself. 2. The 19th century really knew how to do poetry. All of these other editions 
are either sickly or stale in their translation of the verse. That's sad. Some modern editions don't even render the verse as verse. They cast it all as prose text, which makes no sense at all. One of the central points of this work is the rhythmic movement from truth to beauty and back again, as a kind of meta-contemplation. Nobody today seems to get that. And third, following on from my second point, the H.R. James translation is the one that does the best job of melding the poetic and the apologetic into a single flowing, coherent narrative work of art, which is primarily what this work is. It is a confessional dialogue in the tradition of Plato or Augustine, or perhaps even Homer, not a formal doctrinal treatise. It's probably best to let Professor James provide the summary biography of Boethius here, since I am not a historian. Boethius lived in the last quarter of the 5th century AD and the first quarter of the 6th. He was growing to manhood when Theodoric, the famous Ostrogoth, crossed the Alps and made himself master of Italy. Boethius belongs to an ancient family which boasted a connection with the legendary glories of the Republic and was still among the foremost in wealth and dignity in the days of Rome's abasement. His parents dying early, he was brought up by Symmachus, whom the age agreed to regard as of almost saintly character, and afterwards became his son-in-law. Boethius's varied gifts, aided by an excellent education, won for him his reputation of the most accomplished man of his time. He was an orator, poet, musician, and philosopher. It is his peculiar distinction to have handed on to the Middle Ages the tradition of Greek philosophy by his Latin translations of the works of Aristotle, mainly the Organon. Called early to a public career, the highest honors of this state came to him unsought. He was sole consul in 510 AD and was ultimately raised by Theodoric to the dignity of Magister Officiorum, or head of the whole civil administration. He was no less happy in his domestic life, in the virtues of his wife Rusticiana, and the fair promise of his two sons, Symmachus and Boethius. Happy also in the society of a refined circle of friends, noble, wealthy, accomplished, universally esteemed for his virtues, high in the favor of the Gothic king, he appeared to all men a signal example of the union of merit and good fortune. His felicity seemed to culminate in the year 522 AD when, by special and extraordinary favor, his two sons, young as they were for so exalted an honor, were created joint consuls and rode to the Senate House attended by a throng of senators and the acclamations of the multitude. Boethius himself, amid the general applause, delivered the public speech in the king's honor usual on such occasions. Within a year, he was a solitary prisoner at Pavia, stripped of honors, wealth, and friends, with death hanging over him 
and a terror worse than death, in the fear lest those dearest to him should be involved in the worst results of his downfall. And it should be noted that the reason for his imprisonment was that he came to the defense of a man accused of engaging in treason with Constantinople against the court of Theodoric. Theodoric, uneasy and insecure, was swift and certain in his elimination of potential threats. It is in this situation that the opening of the Consolation of Philosophy brings Boethius before us. So Boethius himself was a scholar and translator of the works of Aristotle, and had he survived his famous run-in with Theodoric, would probably have translated what he had available of Plato as well. I think the contemporary podcast discussions on Boethius overemphasize the Stoic influences on the Consolation. Aside from the fact that Stoicism is terribly fashionable today, this overemphasis is largely because none of these folks are very aware of the strains of thought from Aristotle that permeate Boethius's writings. For example, at one point, Lady Philosophy opines to Boethius on the fact that everything in nature obeys a natural law that tends toward the good for all things. This is quite clearly a synthesis of his own Neoplatonism with the Aristotelian notion of telos. But because Aristotle is not well regarded today, the typical interpretation is to call this Stoic necessity. I think that's a mistake. In any case, over the course of this series, we'll be covering all sorts of interesting philosophical questions like that one. For example, the problem of evil, the nature of fate, the existence of God, the metaphysics of free will, and the nature of God's properties, particularly omniscience and omnibenevolence. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here, so I think it's time I got out of the way and commended you into the hands of philosophy herself. Who wrought my studious numbers smoothly once in happier days, now perforce in tears and sadness learn a mournful strain to raise. Lo, the muses, grief disheveled, guide my pen and voice my woe. Down their cheeks unfeigned the teardrops to my sad complainings flow. These alone in danger's hour, faithful found, have dared attend on the footsteps of the exile to his lonely journey's end. These that were the pride and pleasure of my youth and high estate still remain the only solace of the old man's mournful fate. Old? Ah, yes, swift ere I knew it, by these sorrows on me pressed, age hath come. Lo, grief hath bid me wear the garb that fits her best. O'er my head untimely sprinkled these white hairs my woes proclaim. And the skin hangs loose and shriveled on this sorrow-shrunken frame. Blessed is death that intervenes not in the sweet, sweet years of peace, but unto the broken-hearted when they call him, brings release. Yet death passes by the wretched, shuts his ear and slumbers deep, 
will not heed the cry of anguish, will not close the eyes that weep. For while yet inconstant fortune poured her gifts and all was bright, death's dark hour had all but whelmed me in the gloom of endless night. Now, because misfortune's shadow hath o'erclouded that false face, cruel life still halts and lingers, though I loathe his weary race. Friends, why did ye once so lightly vaunt me happy among men? Surely he who so hath fallen was not firmly founded then. While I was thus mutely pondering within myself and recorded my sorrowful complainings with my pen, it seemed to me that there appeared above my head a woman of countenance exceeding venerable. Her eyes were bright as fire, and of a more than human keenness. Her complexion was lively, her vigor showed no trace of enfeeblement, and yet her years were right full, and she plainly seemed not of our age and time. Her stature was difficult to judge. At one moment it exceeded not the common height, and another her forehead seemed to strike the sky. And whenever she raised her head higher, she began to pierce within the very heavens and to baffle the eyes of them that looked upon her. Her garments were of an imperishable fabric, wrought with the finest threads and of the most delicate workmanship, and these, as her own lips afterwards assured me, she had herself woven with her own hands. The beauty of this vesture had been somewhat tarnished by age and neglect, and wore that dingy look which marble contracts from exposure. On the lowermost edge was inwoven the Greek letter Pi, and on the topmost was the letter Theta, and between the two were to be seen steps, like a staircase, from the lower to the upper letter. This robe, moreover, had been torn by the hands of violent persons who had each snatched away what he could clutch. Her right hand held a notebook, in her left she bore a staff, and when she saw the muses of Posy standing by my bedside, dictating the words of my lamentations, she moved a while to wrath, and her eyes flashed sternly. Who, said she, has allowed yon play-acting wantons to approach this sick man, these who, so far from giving medicine to heal this malady, even feed it with sweet poison. These it is who kill the rich crop of reason with the barren thorns of passion, who accustom men's minds to disease instead of setting them free. Now, were it some common man whom your allurements were seducing, as is usually your way, I should be less indignant. On such a one, I should not have spent my pains for naught. But this is one nurtured in the Eleatic and academic philosophies. Nay, get ye gone, ye sirens, whose sweetness lasteth not. Leave him for my muses to tend and heal." At these words of upbraiding, the whole band, in deepened sadness, with downcast eyes and blushes that confessed their shame, dolefully left the chamber. But I, because my sight was dimmed with much weeping, 
and I could not tell who was this woman of authority so commanding. I was dumbfounded, and with my gaze fastened on the earth, continued silently to await what she might do next. Then she drew near me, and sat on the edge of my couch, and, looking into my face all heavy with grief and fixed in sadness on the ground, she bewailed in these words the disorder of my mind. Alas, in what abyss his mind is plunged, how wildly tossed! Still, still toward the outer night she sinks, her true light lost, as oft as lashed tumultuously by earthborn blasts, care's waves rise high. Yet once he ranged the open heavens, the sun's bright pathway tracked, watched how the cold moon waxed and waned, nor rested till there lacked to his wide ken no star that steers amid the maze of circling spheres. The cause is why the blusterous winds vex ocean's tranquil face, whose hand doth turn the stable globe, or why his even race from out the ruddy east the sun unto the western waves doth run. What is it tempers cunningly the placid hours of spring, so that its blossom with the rose for earth's engarlanding, who loads the year's maturer prime with clustered grapes in autumn time. All this he knew, thus ever strove deep nature's lore to guess. Now reft of reason's light he lies and bonds his neck oppress, while by the heavy load constrained, his eyes to this dull earth are chained. But the time, said she, calls rather for healing than for lamentation. Then, with her eyes bent full upon me, Art thou that man, she cries, who erstwhile fed with the milk and reared upon the nourishment which is mine to give, had grown up to the full vigor of a manly spirit, and yet I had bestowed such armor on thee as would have proved an invincible defense hadst thou not first cast it away. Dost thou know me? Why art thou silent? Is it shame or amazement that hath struck thee dumb? Would it were shame, but, as I see, a stupor hath seized upon thee. Then, when she saw me not only answering nothing, but mute and utterly incapable of speech, she gently touched my breast with her hand and said, There is no danger. These are the symptoms of lethargy, the usual sickness of deluded minds. For a while, he has forgotten himself. He will easily recover his memory if only he first recognizes me. And that he may do so, let me now wipe his eyes that are clouded with a mist of mortal things. Thereat, with a fold of her robe, she dried my eyes, all swimming with tears.